Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, December 13th, 2018, the TikTok Trump edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. And I'm joined as usual by my co-host, Scott Lucas, Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? Well, I'm crawling through the wreckage, but, you know, still still here, so that's a start. Is this the wreckage of the University of Birmingham, of your hopes and dreams, oh, of American and British politics? No, in what the, are, in the past, past 48 hours. There's been the triple, the triple enjoyment of what's happening regarding Saudi Arabia, who tend to have a penchant for bumping off journalists now. There's been uh, our fun with a prime minister and Brexit, and uh, she survives as a lame duck while we go off the cliff of a no deal. And then we turn to our topic for today in the United States. Right. So you've been fielding questions about all of these things. Absolutely. But t- t- today we will we – will, we've had a couple of special editions for, for the last couple where we've mm. been – we were talking about Brazil with a couple of visitors. Then we had a big bumper Brexit edition. Today we're bringing the brand back to its, uh, its comfort zone, which is Scott and I having a good old-fashioned bilateral doubleheader about the fact that uh, the president of the United States is basic and bad uh, and is doing a bunch <laughs> of indefensible things. Um, and uh, I, I suppose I, I should note for the benefits of listeners that I've got a little bit of a cold. So if, you, if you're detecting that my, that my voice is either subpar or has a certain gravelly gravity uh, that, you, that you care for more than my normal tones, that is the reason why. But hopefully the glass of water that I've got next to me and the paracetamol coursing through my veins will take us, take us home. Let me do my usual table setting, first of all, just to bring the viewers up to speed of what we're going to... The viewers, maybe, maybe they're looking at their at their audio device, but they cannot see us, I don't think. I hope they can't see us. They'll be a surprise and a shock if they could. Uh, the listeners, um, up to speed with, what, with where we are on, on this topic, and then we, we can kind of go from there and follow where the evidence takes us, if you will. Um, it seems like almost every month since January 2017, which is when Donald Trump uh, was inaugurated as president, you could say with at least some basis that some material development seemed to have moved Donald Trump's presidency closer to legal and political crisis, uh, perhaps presaging its ultimate collapse. Uh, the, the last couple of weeks, have se- it seemed especially plausible to make these claims, however, with forward movement on several fronts of the criminal investigation into Trump's former campaign staff and the president himself appearing more rattled and consequently even more volatile, if that's possible, in his public statements on the matter than ever before. Uh, The Democratic Party's victory in the midterm elections and its incoming majority in the U.S. House of Representatives with all of the investigative powers that it has, has added to the sense that the walls may be closing in. Uh, And with the president having announced the departure of another White House chief of staff this week and apparently struggling uh, to appoint a new one, the cast of characters willing to work at the heart of this administration seems to be shrinking yet further, creating a hovering sense that the end game may be in sight. So how bad do things really look for Trump and what might that end when it comes ultimately look like? That's what I think we're going we're gonna to kick around today. So Scott, you, like I, will have been following this pretty closely. So let's, let's go through what's been happening in the cogs of the legal system just to uh, get purchase on the question of what specifically has happened in the last couple of weeks that makes people um, feel like 
the situation is getting less escapable and the vice is getting tighter around President Trump. There have been three different characters who have who have this is a sort of strange um episodic affair the, 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 these multi-fund investigations where characters flash into the public view a bunch of stuff and revelations and or court movements happen and they go away again and three of the big players have come back in the last few weeks one is michael flynn uh, who was donald trump's national security advisor very briefly the beginning of the administration before that a campaign advisor on foreign policy uh, another is paul manafort who was his uh, campaign manager for a significant crucial portion of time during the summer of uh, 2016 uh, and then michael cohen who was Donald Trump's private lawyer uh, for a substantial number of years in his private life and business life before becoming a political candidate, but then continuing into his political candidacy and and through the election. They've all come back um, through the court system in recent weeks because they have all been uh, nailed to the wall by the Mueller investigation and or other investigations spun off from the Mueller investigation, but in, in different in different ways, and they, they put different pieces of the puzzle in place for potentially subsequent uh, accusations and charges against Donald Trump. Let's start with Michael Flynn, if, 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 if we can. Um, what exactly is Michael Flynn accused of, and where does that currently, where has that most recently landed in the legal system? Yeah, so Michael Flynn was best known as the first national security advisor in the Trump administration, serving just over three weeks in January, February 2017. Uh, Before that, however, he had been a senior advisor in the Trump campaign through 2016. And he's a former... Military and before, officer uh, and before, who had like left that role, he'd retired under President Obama and then become more politically vocal and gotten involved with the Trump right. campaign. To be specific, he was uh, – I can't remember how many stars, but he was a general who was head of the Defense Intelligence Agency. And in fact, he was pushed out in 2014 at the Defense Intelligence Agency because some of his views were a bit ropey, which affected his handling of intelligence and staff. But that's off to the side in terms of what we're talking about, which is the connection between him as a campaign advisor and then as national security advisor. And it really centers around uh, contact that he had with the Russian ambassador to Washington, uh, Sergei Kislyak. In specifically, in December 2016, uh, Flynn spoke with Kislyak. This is after Donald Trump had been elected, Trump but before elected, he had been inaugurated. Before he became inaugurated. Uh, But he spoke with him several times uh, about the lifting of U.S. sanctions on Moscow. Uh, In December 2016, there was a new – or end of November 2016, there was a new set of sanctions put on by the Obama administration, which is leaving office. This was in response to Russian interference uh, in the 2016 election, um, building on sanctions that were already in place as a result of the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, and annexation of Crimea. Absolutely right. And so, you know, it's one thing for someone to discuss that with the Russians after they've taken office, but to discuss the sanctions of an administration that's still in office before you take power, that's a bit of a no-no to say the least. But what got Flynn into trouble immediately wasn't the actual contacts as much as that after he became national security advisor, the FBI speaks to him about the conversations and Flynn lies about it. He lies about the substance of the conversation. Uh, And 
the effect of that is that he is forced out as national security advisor. Trump administration can't keep him on because he's become a liability. He then goes through the legal process, which has culminated uh, in this past week with a sentencing recommendation that Flynn should receive very little prison time. Now, what's the reason for that? Well, that brings us to the broader story because after he is charged, he begins to cooperate with the Trump-Russia investigation of Robert Mueller, mm -hmm. which may mean he's not only talking about the specific event, which is his contacts with the Russian ambassador. He may know other things about the campaign. He may know about mm -hmm. what happened even in that period when he was national security advisor. And let me give the listener one to hang on to. It is highly unlikely that Michael Flynn spoke to Sergei Kislyak about sanctions off his, of his own volition. It is quite likely that he did so after he was in contact with other officials about making the contact. And there are two names which have surfaced. They are in the public domain, so we don't get in trouble. Uh, the two names that are connected with him are uh, a woman named K.T. McFarland, who was deputy national security advisor uh, for and while Flynn was there and then after he left. But the other name is Jared Kushner, Donald Trump's son-in-law. And the question that immediately surfaced around Flynn is, is, is it not just a case that you were pursuing and talking about sanctions with Kislyak, but that you had, had others in the Trump campaign who were doing so, and what were their motives? Right. So, so the big picture here is that one of the planks of what the investigation by Special Counsel Robert Mueller is looking into is the idea that Throughout the campaign in 2016, uh, Donald Trump and or subordinates were to some degree colluding with the government of Russia to advance his political interests with Russian cooperation, possibly including Russian intelligence operations involving hacked emails, in exchange for which Donald Trump was planning once in office to soften America's position across a range of areas of Russian interest most pressingly to alleviate some sanctions yep. that have been placed on Russia beforehand. So once Michael Flynn, who, given his prominence within that campaign's national security staff, which was not like a huge, a huge number of people, he would have been, uh, if anybody was across uh, uh, that issue in the campaign and involved in those sorts of discussions, it would have been him. So once he had misled FBI interrogators about what he did or did not say to the Russian ambassador in those discussions, and therefore they had him banged to rights for lying to the FBI, they were able to apply pressure to him to cooperate and tell them anything and everything he may know uh, about whatever went on within the campaign, especially in its discussions uh, with Russians, about Russians, um, to fill out the fact base of, of those kind of collusion accusations. Yeah. And so now he, the stage we are now at is that he is going to receive a sentence of some kind for the, for the offense of lying to the FBI yeah. to which he has pleaded guilty and the government is recommending that he be treated much more leniently than he otherwise might because of that cooperation. The details of exactly what he has cooperated with them on remain uncertain because of course he will have revealed things that they don't that, that the investigation doesn't want to put out there completely uncensored no. in public because that would give away to those about whom he may have revealed things uh, all of the government's hand yeah i mean to be specific, what we do know is this was 19 meetings 19 meetings between cohen and the team of robert Mueller, 
Uh, if I remember correctly, it's about 50 hours of conversations. But you've summarized it quite nicely in that. This is Flynn, you mean? This is Michael Flynn, yeah. Yes. And that you summarize it quite nicely in that Michael Flynn is almost, in fact, the point man because of the national security dimension for the question of, all right, what lies behind it in terms of, and to use the uh, legal term, not the colloquial, not talking about collusion, conspiracy, whether there's actual conspiracy during 2016. But before I get onto that, because that brings us into Manafort, that brings us into Michael Cohen, uh, there's also a related uh, charge which can be laid against Donald Trump, which is obstruction of justice. Mm -hmm. Because specifically in the case of Michael Flynn, uh, he is removed from office on February the 14th. But on that date or at about that time, uh, Donald Trump asked the FBI director, James Comey, to not pursue any investigation against Flynn. Now, the immediate assumption about that is that Trump had asked that out of a sense of personal loyalty to Flynn, that you know Flynn had served him and that therefore he didn't want to see him face any criminal time, despite having to let him go. But there is a wider possibility, which now takes us back to our question of conspiracy, which is that Trump may have known that Flynn had a great deal of information that would be damaging, and he was telling Comey, at that very early stage, which is before Robert Mueller was appointed, look, just don't pursue this. Right. So plank one of the situation here is you have this guy who was at the center of the campaign's national security discussions. Therefore, you would think if anyone knows things about uh, involvement with Russia, he would be the person. And it would appear he has told Robert Mueller's investigation everything that that he knows. So that's one – one thing that's sitting on the table uh, in front of Donald Trump right now, gnawing at his guts. Second plank, Paul Manafort. He was, for a period of time, the campaign, the, the Trump presidential campaign manager for 2016. Not for the entirety of the time, but through the summer of 2016, which was a crucial period in which the Republican National Convention occurred, um, in which a variety of meetings that are at the heart of the the Russia collusion investigation happened, um, Mm -hmm. including with some representatives of the Russian government who were proffering, at least they said, uh, information about Hillary Clinton uh, procured from sources that we that we would assume to be the hacked emails that that, that have that have um, become the centerpiece uh, of the criminal dimension of of of, of that. He has since uh, experienced a great unraveling um, in in the time since he was on that campaign. He left that campaign um, under something of a cloud because it seems even even the Trump people twigged that maybe this was a guy who was at great legal jeopardy and with whom they were not wise to be associating themselves. That has turned out to be a good instinct, but perhaps one that kicked in a little too late. Once he, once the, the Mueller investigation started really looking under all the rocks with regard to him, it transpired that he had been for many years running a political consultancy in Washington, D.C., that in many ways pioneered the, the kind of business of reputation management and or lobbyist access in Washington, D.C., which is, of course, a absolute sewer of an industry full of unethical practices. But he had subsequent to that, um, possibly having exhausted his options for self-enrichment domestically, taken his skills offshore and become a kind of um, a hired hand for the worst kind of foreign 
dictators and kleptocrats using the skills he'd developed in American politics to help them launder their reputations through lobbying of the American political process to gain whatever influence they required to burnish their standing at home and also to some degree advising on their campaigns and strategies in their own domestic politics. The most recent large contract that he had for that kind of thing was propping up the Russian-backed leader. Um, this would be Viktor Yanukovych of Ukraine, uh, who paid him millions of pounds, uh, presumably uh, with some uh, dubious set of routes for the acquisition of which and the disbursement of which, over a period of years to to do political strategy type work for him as he as, as he endeavored to maintain russian political control of the political situation in ukraine essentially so he he had a long standing relationship with the Russian government and with the funneling of Russian government funds for political purposes. Uh, and he had uh, run out of road with that when, as a result of a series of unforeseen political events, Viktor Yanukovych fell out of power in Ukraine. Uh, he had to flee the country. Um, but then he went back to America, got this job with the Trump campaign. And the suggestion is that because he no longer had that job, had run out of money, uh, used that position in order to um, in order to try and make himself useful to the political interests that he had been friendly with in his Ukrainian context by selling his new status as a member of the Trump campaign to pay off debts that he had to them from his time over there. But at, from the point of view of the Mueller inquiry, their angle of entry is that he had been making millions and millions and millions of pounds running all of these shady offshore political consultancy operations, but not informing the U.S. tax man about any of it. Uh, and consequently, as soon as they began to probe his finances, they found that he had a, an enormous amount of money that was not accounted for very well in terms of its origins, that certainly had not had tax paid on it, and that if you wanted to, um, <laughs> if you wanted to nail him for that, then you had a very, very strong chance of doing it. He pleaded not guilty. He took it to court. They nailed him to the wall mm -hmm. for tax avoidance and a variety of other um, dubious financial choices, you might say. But he also came to an agreement, like Michael Flynn, whereby he would proffer whatever information he had in exchange for the more lenient treatment that they might be willing to recommend for him in exchange for that. Where are we with that now? So Manafort... Uh -huh. In that excellent summary on the legal side of this, was convicted in August of eight charges connected with his finances, uh, effectively tax and fraud charges, I think covering about $65 million that he made but hadn't declared uh, to the U.S. government. The, he then, uh, as part of this deal that you're talking about, pled guilty uh, to two more charges in September. But Last week, the Mueller team said that he broke the terms of the plea bargain because he had lied to them on five key issues, uh, two of which have, are, are pretty key. One is, is that uh, through 2016, he was maintaining contacts with various folks, uh, one of whom is a former Russian military intelligence officer named Konstantin Klemnik who is a, in his own way a consultant who had worked with 
uh, Manafort on areas such as Ukraine. Right, he seems to have had a sort of odd double role in that he was a kind of employee slash colleague slash partner of Paul Manafort in running his private consultancy right. business, but he also seems to have been some kind of asset of the Russian intelligence services, which perhaps is not that surprising given that Paul Manafort's main job for the last several years no. in his private capacity was essentially to help the Russian government corruptly control the Ukrainian political process. So it, yeah. it kind of makes sense um, in, in light of that history, but transferred yeah. to like Paul Manafort being a, a U.S. political consultant helping a presidential candidate, that obviously like works, looks way less um, understandable. Exactly. I mean, and, and to get specific to where we are in terms of what might be a conspiracy, although the details haven't been released of the level of the contact, there have been some emails which indicate that Manafort and Clement were talking about fostering basically contacts between the Kremlin and the campaign. Uh, and this is in the summer of 2016. Manafort, to be specific, joined the Trump campaign in March of 2016. Uh, it was around about June when he replaced Corin Lewandowski, who had been accused of assaulting a reporter. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then he was there for two months until August when newspapers started to reveal the connections he had over the pro-Russian parties in Ukraine. That's why he went out. Right. And we, in and that period, he's in contact with Kalimnik. The second major issue that they identify where they say that Manafort is lying or violated the terms is, is that after Manafort uh, was convicted, that – he continued to remain in touch with Trump administration officials. Uh, and that's a big no-no because, of course, they're subjects of the inquiry and that Manafort was in contact with the Trump administration officials from the time that he was convicted or ple- pleaded guilty in the autumn of 2017 up until February of 2018 and then indeed tried to get in touch with him in May. His lawyers continued to remain in touch with Donald Trump's lawyers under what's considered a joint defense agreement. Mm. Which which is, if two people are under simultaneous investigation or are simultaneously mm. charged with having colluded in some criminal offense, it's quite usual for their lawyers to have some kind of agreement to right. pursue their defense collaboratively. What is not usual is if one of those people reaches an agreement with the prosecutors that they will cooperate fully in exchange for a guilty plea and lenient treatment, that someone who has not admitted to anything and is therefore still the focus potentially of an access all areas, no holds barred investigation, um, is for them to continue to have a relationship of that type with them and therefore presumably reveal all sorts of things about the kinds of questions they're being asked, the thinking and strategy of the prosecutors uh, at the same time as, uh, at the, same time as the, the people they're revealing that to like, have a, a clear interest in having that information to build their own defense. So you're attempting to play both sides to some degree. So the issue with Manafort um, stems from the fact that, like Flynn, he is potentially at the heart of a series of discussions during the election campaign that connect to Russia. So it's Russia investigation rooted, but also uh, speaks to obstruction of justice because if people working close to Donald Trump have been in contact with Paul Manafort attempting 
with varying degrees of explicitness to negotiate either his silence or his dishonesty with regard to issues that would implicate the president in exchange for the prospect of perhaps some kind of uh, uh, use of presidential power up to and including a pardon to help him out of his legal troubles, then that starts to look an awful lot like the president attempting to um, block off the route this investigation might have to himself, corruptly using the powers of his office. Yeah, because remember, in terms of the immediate case, remember that uh, Donald Trump, through his lawyers, has now submitted written answers to the Mueller team. And it is quite possible that Manafort, as they're drafting that written statement, is saying, all right, here's what Mueller knows about it. Here's what he's asked me about it. So that would help them craft that statement. So it seems quite, just to add to that, it seems quite plausible given the timeline of events that, that unfolded that Robert Mueller's investigation had concluded that Manafort was not fully cooperating, was uh, playing this double game, communicating things to the Trump administration, Trump. perhaps giving the Trump administration an impression of what Mueller knew, mm. that Mueller twigged this that they waited until Donald Trump had provided whatever written answers he was going to provide, believing that he had special secret inside access to Mueller's thinking via Manafort. And then upon the moment of Donald Trump's answers being set down on paper and locked up, unchangeable in Robert Mueller's hands, the Mueller investigation reveals, oh, uh, we know that um, Manafort has been spilling whatever beans he has to Trump. And we uh, <laughs> uh, we also would like to reveal that we know he's not told us everything because we have rock solid evidence of things that he was denying. So if Donald Trump premised his answers on the idea that whatever Manafort was lying about to Mueller was unprovable or that Mueller would never know about it, well, that is now, uh, <laughs> that is not now turning out to be a good assumption. So second thing sitting on the table gnawing at Donald Trump's guts is the idea that he may have said things in his answers based on the assumption that whatever Manafort was keeping quiet about was something uh, that Mueller didn't know, would never know, but actually Mueller knows a bunch of stuff that Manafort was not being truthful about, yeah, and, he, and he may have exposed himself to some jeopardy as a result. And in a nutshell, Trump's at risk of perjury because he would have been answering or anticipating questions, um, thinking, all right, if I say this, they'll never be able to establish that I'm lying, whereas Man uh, the Mueller team's holding evidence. Because you think the only way Mueller's going to know something is if Manafort tells them, and Manafort's reassuring you he hasn't told them, then you feel like you have yeah. latitude to, to, to work on that assumption. Yeah. But if it turns out that they can prove whatever yeah. Manafort's lying about, then you're in a whole other world of trouble. Well, that's happened with more than one person, and we'll talk about another person in a minute who also has been questioned by the team. But let me go to Manaf Manafort's big significance because it's even – it's beyond um, the specifics on obstruction and perjury, and it's beyond Michael Flynn in that sense. And that is that Paul Manafort comes into the campaign with the knowledge of these Ukrainian and Russian contacts. So there is a possibility that Manafort – who is, of course, his campaign manager overseeing the finance, would know of financial channels through which the Russians may be able to put money into the campaign. Now, the reason why that is a possibility is that is what is alleged in the Steele dossier, which is that dossier going back to 2016 from a former MI6 agent, which talks about the contacts, including two Russian banks. But let me add to that. Paul Manafort on the staff and then his campaign manager there is another aspect that 
has come up in the recent weeks, and that is the Mueller investigation are investigating exactly what happened between the Russians and the Trump campaign to release emails that could damage Hillary Clinton, mm-hmm. which would be conspiracy. Which, which is a very important fact because although there are a lot of ways in which you might have conversations with Russians, be it government agents or otherwise, about things they could say or do that would benefit your political interests, most of that lives within the realm of the grotesquely inappropriate and the kinds of things that the norms of American mm-hmm. politics would normally say you absolutely like shouldn't be doing that and a healthy political system would make you pay a big price for it. But there is a specific crime at the heart of, uh, of this investigation mm-hmm. too, which is the illegal... Uh, hacking of a couple of email accounts, one belonging to John Podesta, Hillary Clinton's campaign manager, another belonging to the Democratic National Committee, the organizational hub of that party, and then the dissemination of the contents of those emails via the WikiLeaks website in a way that seems to have been timed in order to maximize the harm done to politically to, to Hillary Clinton. And that, whatever way you slice it, is a crime. And so anybody who is Anyone who is de- who was demonstrably aware of either that hacking or who received knowingly the fruits of that hacking or advised knowingly on how to disseminate its fruits, yeah. they are complicit in a straight-up, good old-fashioned criminal offense without the need to engage in um, debates about like. Uh, who's a good guy and a bad guy in the hard knuckle game of, of politics? Yeah. Yeah. So that's why that's why the emails are particularly important because right. that's where the, that's where unambiguous criminality can be hung. Exactly. So what was happening is there are two people who reportedly are on the verge of indictment who are connected with the Trump campaign before you met. because in the summer of 2016 they were in contact allegedly with the head of WikiLeaks, a man named Julian Assange, um, who is been in the Ecuadorian embassy. Yeah, the reason London, we don't need to get into is the living hiding in, in the, the London Ecuadorian embassy. embassy. But, embassy but it's important now. to note that they had contact with him. These two individuals are a Trump campaign staffer and self-proclaimed dirty trickster named Roger Stone and a good friend of his, a radio show host and conspiracy theorist named Jerome Corsi. And there have been emails leaked, you know, released in the media about contacts between these two men discussing the release of the stolen documents by uh, – WikiLeaks. Now, where does Manafort fit into this? We'll take the listener back very, very quickly, and that is that uh, back in March of 2016, WikiLeaks made a public call for information about Hillary Clinton, specifically her uh, appearances before Goldman Sachs, private appearances, to talk about the financial situation. Could anyone get transcripts of that? On the day that WikiLeaks issued that call, uh, Russian military intelligence began trying to hack the computers around Clinton, around the Democratic Committee. Uh, we know that within weeks, a Russian-linked academic named Joseph Mifsud was offering those emails to a, another Trump campaign staffer named George Papadopoulos. The revelation in the last few weeks, which is not completely proven, it is alleged, but it is that Paul Manafort, who had met Julian Assange on occasions back to 2013 – met Julian Assange around March 2016. Well, this was a strangely sort of a single source or uh, anonymously sourced Guardian article claimed this and no other reputable media outlet seems to have um, been able to verify the contents of that story. So 
it's kind of hovered in the air, neither right. neither sustained nor because the sources that the Guardian has, interestingly enough, unlike most stories that circulate where you get them from Western sources, are from the Ecuadorians themselves, and that is is that someone inside the Ecuadorian embassy and uh, combine says that they saw Paul Manafort there, and that there's a visitor's log that refers to Manafort going into the embassy. And there's a document from the Ecuadorian intelligence services that the Guardian is relying on, but has not been able to publish or is not willing to publish at this point. So I have to say it is unproven, but I would say that if this was established, this would add to the WikiLeaks dimension, which is already out there in terms of that they – May have been well. Let's put it this way: U.S. intelligence, as early as 2017, was saying that WikiLeaks, either wittingly or unwittingly, was being used by the Russians to disseminate this information. Manafort's involvement would heighten this uh, by mm. tying the top levels of the Trump campaign. Okay, so those are our first our first couple of big players. We've got one senior campaign official and briefly administration official who is about to get sentenced, hopefully going to avoid jail time because he spilled his guts about what he does and doesn't know about Trump and Russia. We've got another uh, campaign official who's almost certainly going to jail for a very long time, um, who may have revealed some things, may not have revealed other things, but whose selective revelations and the fact that he was colluding with Donald Trump uh, in how selective they are uh, may well have exposed Trump to a whole other dimension of legal jeopardy, which is obstruction of justice. And then the third player uh, who's been prominent in the news in the last um, while, and especially in the last 24 hours, because he's just had his sentencing to three years in jail, is Michael Cohen. Now, he's a different sort of figure in all of this, because unlike Flynn and Manafort, both of whom came into Donald Trump's life in relatively recent years as as part of the Trump presidential political project, Michael Cohen was just some apparently not that good at his job lawyer who like Donald Trump has this has had this habit for many 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 years of essentially surrounding himself with people chosen not primarily because of their talent at whatever their line of work is but because of their willingness to do whatever he asks them to do and be maximally sycophantic uh, while while they do it so Michael Cohen seems to be a kind of not particularly bright, not particularly talented, but um, highly obedient and extremely easily influenced and led uh, character who worked as Donald Trump's lawyer for a number of years, basically as a sort of fixer while Donald Trump was running uh, Trump Org, sometimes to do with issues to do with his business, sometimes to do with issues to do with his personal life, whenever there was something that Donald Trump needed sorted out. And, um, like, he doesn't seem to have... There's been this debate uh, that came up during the course of the investigations of him. Like, at what times was he acting as Donald Trump's lawyer, as in carrying out legal work for him? And at what times was he simply a guy who happened to be a lawyer who was functioning as his kind of bag man? Um, And he ended up um, in trouble because the Mueller investigation has provided... And this is what Donald Trump was, I think, afraid of about it from day one. The Mueller investigation has provided a kind of crowbar to pry the top off 
a whole raft of activities that Donald Trump was involved in that might, you could argue, connect in some way to, uh, to, to, to Russian collusion, including his business activities, his finances, all of that. And what looking at Michael Cohen uh, ended up turning up was that, okay, where to start with this one? It would appear that Donald Trump had a sexual relationship with at least two women who were not his wife. I mean, he's had a sexual relationship with many women not his wife over the years, uh, and self-confessedly so. But in more recent years, with two two women, one a a playboy model, uh, another a porn star... um, and on bo- in both cases, they were paid off in order not to retail their stories to the tabloid press. And those payoffs were executed via financial channels created by Michael Cohen. And uh, the negotiations around doing this were carried out by Michael Cohen. And because that happened at a time when Michael, when, when Donald Trump was a political candidate, prosecutors have been able to make the argument that it was done in order to advance his political interests. Consequently, that qualifies as a political, a use of political campaign funds that is illegal and inappropriate because it wasn't, for obvious reasons, if you want to take $300,000 and pay a lady to keep quiet about the fact that you've been having a sexual affair with her behind your wife's back, you can't write that up in a report on your campaign finances and file it with the uh, Federal Elections Commission because that rather defeats the object of paying someone for their silence. As a result, that qualifies as a use of funds to advance your political interest about which you have not been fully and forthcoming through the legal channels you're supposed to. That is the specific crime for which he has been nailed to the wall. He has also, however, been found to have not been uh, full and forthcoming with the tax man. He's been up to his neck in a variety of questionable business dealings over a longer time horizon that presumably he has a strong interest in in minimizing prosecutors' further interest in. So he... uh, uh, even more fully, uh, perhaps, than, than Mike Flynn, and certainly more fully than Paul Manafort, has decided, oh, my God, I am in an enormous amount of legal trouble here. I could go to jail for a really, really, really long time, so I'm going to spill my guts to the prosecutors in the hope that they're not going to... Um, in hope that they're going to have mercy on me if I tell them everything I possibly can about Donald Trump's involvement with Russia, about Donald Trump's involvement with these payoffs, etc. He has now been sentenced to three years in jail, has made a variety of public statements about how he was led off the path of light by the corrupting influence of Donald Trump. And so the third thing gnawing at Donald Trump's guts Mm -hmm. is the fact that his personal lawyer, who for 10 years was basically involved in um, setting up Barack uh, secret financial architectures for the purposes of uh, definitely bribing people, possibly other reasons, um, has now, it would seem, seem unburdened himself completely in a desperate effort to minimize his own legal, legal liability uh, to this investigation, mm-hmm. which originated, as one last thing, I guess, to, qu- to, 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 um, to qualify here, this originated with Robert Mueller's investigation, but was handed off subsequently to a different legal investigative branch of the of the federal authorities uh, in the uh, southern district of the state of New York. So it's kind of Robert Mueller's doing, but he is not technically the person who... Yeah, I mean, just as with Paul Manafort. I mean, Manafort, remember, was actually 
convicted and pled, pled guilty to financial affairs that were not directly connected with the Trump campaign. With Michael Cohen, however, if you have Michael Flynn being the guy handling foreign affairs, including with the Russians, and if you have Manafort handling financial affairs and possibly links such as overseeing the uh, the Clinton email operation, where Michael Cohen is important is because he links the Trump organization and Trump's business interest with the Trump campaign and Trump's political interest. Now, what's interesting, of course, is, is what they got him on uh, – as it links there, is not about Russia. It's just simply that in order to prevent Donald Trump from being damaged just before the vote took place in 2016, they arrange $150,000 to Karen McDougal, the former Playboy model, through uh, American Media, which is the publisher of the National Enquirer, the tabloid, uh, who buy up her story and then bury it. And then less than two weeks before the election, is the $130,000 to Stormy Daniels not to go public before that November 8th vote. Now, you explain it quite well, and that is if Donald Trump had made the payment directly to these women, it would have been almost a personal contribution in kind to his election, which is allowed. Because this was done through a company that Michael Cohen set up, therefore it's through a third party, and he has made a campaign contribution in kind to these women, which is over five thousand mm-hmm. dollars, which constitutes which is not just a misdemeanor; that is a felony charge in the United States. And therefore, uh, he, amongst the multiple charges to which he pleaded guilty, uh, because he had hidden millions of dollars from the tax man, uh, he's on the hook for it. Now. What has happened that is significant in this specific case is that last Friday when the sentencing memorandum was handed down recommending a substantial period of jail time for Cohen, even though it only turns out to be three years, prosecutors for the first time, in this case federal prosecutors in New York, linked Donald Trump to criminal activity because they specifically said Trump coordinated with Cohen and he directed the payments. Right. So we have have a situation now where Michael Cohen is going to jail. Correct because he committed crimes to which he is pleading guilty at the direction of unnamed individual one in these indictment documents and charge sheets who we know to be Donald Trump. So one would surmise that if that record is true, the implication is Donald Trump has also been guilty of criminal offenses. Because if, some, if, what, if what was done at his direction was sufficiently serious that the person who did it is going to jail, then one would assume that, if anything, his offense is more serious, at least as serious. Which is what happened on last Sunday, which is after the prosecutor's memorandum, this recommendation came out. But before Flynn, uh, before Cohen receives a sentence, you have a series not only of legislators – but also former U.S. officials, including James Comey, the FBI director, who was fired by Trump, and including uh, uh, lawyers, very prominent lawyers, who say, yes, if Trump was not president, was not sitting as president, he would likely already be facing this criminal charge. But that that's interesting because although it opens the door to what we're talking about here, that door could go really far wider open regarding, again, Trump organization – Trump's finance and the Russia connection. Right. So, yeah, the, the, the final thing, I guess, bef- uh, to um, complete this picture yeah. is 
Okay, that's the leverage that the prosecutors and investigators had over Michael Cohen. What have they used it to make him reveal? Because if Donald Trump was colluding with Russia in the 2016 campaign, and we can see what Russia's interest in that would be, it would be to... um, get someone in office who they believed they could influence to do things mm-hmm. that, that advantage them. The question would be, well, what's in it for what's in it for Donald Trump? Why would he take the risks involved in developing these relationships with the Russians? And that's where the Trump organization's finances come in. There's been a lot of investigative journalism, probably the best parts of it done by Adam Davidson at, at The New Yorker, into the the transition over the years of the Trump organization from being primarily a real estate development company, which would borrow money and build buildings and then hope to recoup uh, more money as a result of the success of that, to being an organization that put the Trump brand on product, on, on construction projects that were financed largely by others and that would be owned largely by others, uh, many of them in countries outside the United States, some of which came to ultimate fruition with a building standing, many of which did not, um, but all of which look to outside observers very much like um, dubious money laundering operations. But the... Uh, uh, the Trump organization was essentially putting a patina of Western prestige and appropriateness on uh, elaborate efforts to either straight up steal money or else clean money that had already been stolen from from somewhere else. Um, and one of Donald Trump's dreams during the course of this phase of – and of course the Trump organization would manage to get like its fee – building or no building for being involved in these transactions so Donald Trump could make money out of it. Um, So Donald Trump's dream for a long time was to have one of these projects in Moscow. Sometimes it sounds like he really wanted to have an actual building come into being with Trump written on it. Sometimes it sounds like it could have been enough just to have another one of these um, big spigots of cash that is, you know, a a construction project of some kind that, that, that his company is associated with. But what Michael Cohen has revealed, uh, apparently, is that contrary to what Donald Trump himself said, contrary to what everyone around the Trump campaign has been maintaining until extremely recently, these negotiations over a Moscow building project through the Trump organization were not ended or suspended as soon as Donald Trump became a political candidate. In fact, they were continued well into his uh, political campaign and may even have continued past the election. And, uh, you know, for all for all we know, uh, some variant on them may be continuing up to the present day. So the so this this completes the the loop of motivation, as it were, which is that Donald Trump has been interested in cultivating the favor of the Russian government for an extremely long time because he wants to fill his pockets with the proceeds of um, possibly legal, possibly illegal, possibly gray area financial transactions in Russia and in Russian-controlled post-Soviet spaces. 
so let me let's bring it all together because we've got these three figures. So the role of Michael Cohen and the importance of the Trump organization goes back to 2013, which is when Donald Trump is pursuing this Trump Tower in Moscow. He uh, brings the Miss Universe pageant to Moscow uh, because he holds the rights to it. Uh, and he wants to meet Vladimir Putin. So it's a half success. He goes, has the pageant there. Uh, he does that in connection with a uh, Russian-Azerbaijani billionaire, uh, Aras Akhalarov. Uh They discuss further this possible project. He doesn't meet Putin at that point, but the seeds are there. Now, Cohen's role as a fixer is key because in November 2015, after Donald Trump is a candidate, this accelerates because Cohen begins working with a boyhood friend, a man named Felix Sater, who has been a Trump business associate. And Sater says, look, I can get you into, I can get you to Russians, including those close to Putin, and we can really drive this project forward. So Cohen and Sater have these discussions. There are preliminary documents which are drawn up, a memorandum of agreement. And Cohen had said initially that it was a very short-lived process, that it was over by January 2016. What Cohen told prosecutors, which led to the sentencing memorandum, is, is that the conversations went until June 2016. Now, why is that date important? Uh, bringing it back into Paul Manafort and Michael Flynn, uh, the discussions went till about June the 16th, June 14th, 2016. Uh, Five days earlier, on June the 9th, 2016, is when the three Kremlin-linked envoys go to Trump Tower to discuss providing Hillary Clinton-related emails to the campaign. Uh, these are campaigns, uh, emails, of course, which have already been stolen by Russian military intelligence. They met Donald Trump Jr., Jared Kushner, Trump's son-in-law, and Paul Manafort. Those were the three officials. Now, uh, the Trump Tower never got built, never got agreed. But, of course, Hillary Clinton's emails or those related to her did come out subsequently. And if you put this all together, you say, what is the Russian price that might have been extracted for this type of cooperation and for other operations? I won't go into the details here, but there's another wing of this, which is the Russians buying up ads on Facebook and using them to target people to vote for Trump. And there, it is being investigated whether there's a Trump campaign connection there as well. well. What the Russians get out of it, one hypothesis would be that they think Donald Trump, with his surprising election victory, is in a position now to lift sanctions on Moscow. And how do you arrange for that to occur? You talk through Michael Flynn. And that's what pulls this entire story together. Um, let me sort of, from my point of view, kind of wrap it up from my point. And that is, I'm half... I'd like to say I'm half right on this. I, uh, I said from the start when you and I had been discussing this that they had a wealth of evidence on Trump, that they would nail him, and that Robert Mueller would do it. Um, I was wrong in saying he would be out of office by June 2018. Uh, but the reason why I was wrong was not because, as Trump would say, it's a nothing burger or there's no evidence there. I or was, witch hunt, I believe. Or witch hunt, I believe. The, uh, I was wrong for exactly the opposite reason. It wasn't that there was not enough evidence there. There was too much evidence there. There's been so much on multiple fronts, whether it's Trump's personal life, whether it's Trump's business dealings, whether it's the campaign, that Mueller has had to proceed very, very methodically on that, which raises the question of when does the showdown come? Right, which... I think takes us to the last thing I want to discuss before we 
wrap this up, because I know we've gotten a little weedsy here for our listeners, but hopefully to to good effect. Uh, it would have been difficult for us to have a conversation of this length if there really were nothing to this. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the suggestion that everything we have just laid out is like simply a fantasy, um, that's asking people to accept a lot, I think. Um, but for most people, I think, where the rubber really hits the road with this is, well, like, what of it? Is there really a possibility that Donald Trump is going to be forced from office prior to the end of his term as a result of what this investigation turns up? Um, The mechanism for that is impeachment um, because it seems – it depends on who you ask. But most people seem to agree that it is not – the po- well, it is definitely not the policy of the Justice Department to lay criminal charges at the door of someone currently in office as president. Robert Mueller, by all accounts, seems to be a by-the-book sort of person. So it would be surprising if he were to deviate uh, from that policy. So if Donald Trump is going to leave office before the end of his term, it's not going to be because the courts do something or criminal investigators do something, to him at least. They may prosecute any number of his his associates. It's going to be because Congress decides that enough is enough, that the president is guilty of high crimes and uh, uh, misdemeanors, and that he must be removed from office through the impeachment process. Is that... Likely? Is that possible? Is it? Can you can you conceive of it happening under any circumstances? I, I I don't think it's likely. In contrast to the Watergate president of Richard Nixon, who, as we know, resigned before impeachment and conviction. Yeah. Just to clarify for our listeners' benefit, what would have to happen for that to occur is you need to, the House of Representatives would first need to have a majority vote Correct. in favor of articles of impeachment, which would be the specification of what the president has done wrong and the recommendation that he should face trial for that. The Senate would then have to convene to hold the sort of quasi-trial uh, based upon those charges. And you would need two-thirds of the U.S. Senate to vote to convict the president of the charges laid at his door by the House of Representatives for him to be forced from office. Right. And, the, you know, and with the Republicans holding a small majority in the Senate, to get even a majority rather than two-thirds is tricky because the difference is, is that in the 1970s, Republicans were willing in joint hearings with Democrats after Richard Nixon tried to shut the investigation down. They were willing to pursue it. Uh, in this case, the Republicans who in a sense are codependent on Trump have been covering his back for 18 months trying to limit the investigation at Stymiet. Now, uh, I think that is probably likely to continue, but we are at the point where I think Robert Mueller will, uh, in a sense, swing at the king with the presentation of all the evidence. And I'm thinking it's probably going to be in the spring. I think Mueller wants a face-to-face with Trump. He would prefer to have that to lay this all out and get answers. But the White House is stonewalling on that. So if he doesn't get that face-to-face... I think he proceeds, but I think it raises a third option, Adam, which I think is the one that I would be paying attention to, and that is we're talking about something which is beyond Richard Nixon here in the sense that Richard Nixon was an unindicted co-conspirator. So we never tested the legal precedent of laying criminal charges against someone while he was in office, as you noted. Uh, But if you were to go to Donald Trump and say, you know, uh, if you serve out your first term, as soon as you leave office, 
you face the likelihood of criminal charges and you face the likelihood of prison time because we have got this, this, and this. Would you like to go ahead and resign now before you face that humiliation? We know that Donald Trump's a very stubborn man. We know he's a very vain man. We know that he does not like to back down. Um, the immediate thought is, well, he would just dig his heels in and hold off against us. But I think what has happened in the last week, which has prompted our conversation, is that these multiple fronts, these multiple investigations, have really started to close. You can see it on Trump's temperament. He doesn't – I mean he never seems like he's entirely the master of his own emotions. But he does seem like a man who's cracking at yeah. the moment, I mean, above and beyond the usual yeah. it, ridiculously low there, bar I mean, for composure that he normally sets. There's even little clues. I mean I just – for your listeners in terms of like – the stuff we watch each day is that yesterday, which of course would have been you know, the day that, that Michael Cohen would have appeared um, and been sentenced, Donald Trump didn't show, off at, didn't show up in the, uh, his White House offices until the afternoon. He had no appointments, had nothing to do. But not only did he not show up until the afternoon, he didn't tweet. You know, and it is rare for him not to tweet. So for hours, he just went off radar, as it were. When he has come back in in the past week, he has done so by just furious insults about Robert Mueller. Um, and so, yes, I think he's cracking. I think that ties to something we won't discuss today. But the other key event of this week, which is John Kelly resigning as White House chief of staff just because he can't control Trump anymore. And at some point, it may not be Robert Mueller that puts the pistol on the desk, but it may be someone close to Trump, perhaps a relative, Ivanka, Jared. Perhaps a key friend who says, you just mm. – your call, sir. Mm. I mean, uh, Benjamin Wittes, who you know is – I find him quite an irritating public commentator in many ways. But he has kind of come into his own uh, as a legal analyst of the Trump era because he's, like, I suppose, uh, nonpartisan by disposition but willing to – call it as he sees it with regard to the outrages of the Trump presidency, wrote an article in The Atlantic um, in the last week or so, which I think was quite perceptive uh, about impeachment, which is to say it has – it's been an asset to Donald Trump up until this point. Um, and the phrase people keep using is that impeachment is not a legal process. It's yep. a political process mm -hmm. by which they mean you're not going to get like some judge and a jury of your peers deciding whether or not you've committed a crime in the way you would in any normal mm -hmm. process. Essentially, you need to convince a bunch of elected officials who will at some point have to face attempts at re-election, some of whom are in your own party, that whatever you have done is sufficiently serious that you deserve to lose your office as a result of it. Um, and that, I think, has worked very much in his favor because such has been his grip over the Republican Party, such has been the buoyancy mm -hmm. of his polling, um, just about with everybody, but especially within the Republican Party's own self-identified voter base, um, that... Even though an enormous amount of stuff is in the public domain already that under normal circumstances would lead, uh, would, would lead to a, a judgment that this is not someone who's fit to hold this office because he's done a whole number of things that, 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 that are disqualifying, they don't want to move against him because their, their political interests cut too hard the other way. But 
It is perfectly possible, as a result of it being primarily a political process, not a legal process, that his fate could radically shift, not as a result of any change in the law, not as a result of any change in the evidence, but because of a change in the political mood or the political circumstances. That the tipping point that's likely to come, if it comes, is not in terms of what we know and how outrageous it is, but in terms of his political... Uh, firewall against facing the consequences for what we have known for some time. Now, Robert Mueller seems likely to deliver a, a, a big, fat file of information uh, that, that he has garnered from his investigations. But my strong suspicion is that that's going to just be a somewhat better footnoted version of stuff, that if you aggregated what's been reported uh, through investigative journalism on multiple fronts over the last over the last couple of years, we, we already knew. But people just haven't felt like doing anything about it. And I think keeping... Um, Richard Nixon still had 25% of the American public saying he was doing a good job the day he resigned from office. So I think there's always going to be some people who stick with him. But keeping an eye on whether or not his, um, his political support holds when people's calculations move away from thinking this is the hegemonic political force controlling our political party for the foreseeable future and yeah. start shifting towards this is the strikingly unpopular president in a pretty bad spot vis-a-vis re-election in 2020 who's just lost us the House of Representatives. When, when his political viability starts to look less good, I think maybe that's going to work out less well for him. You know, I, I use that phrase a few minutes ago, which is the Republicans as a codependent party on, on Trump. And I, I deliberately use that because it's like a, codep- you know, a codependent who is covering for an abusive spouse or a spouse with a serious disorder. And let me frame it this way. It's more serious than what happened in the 1970s for Richard Nixon, because what happened, you're absolutely right to note that Nixon retained 25 percent. It could also be noted, of course, he'd won the greatest landslide in American electoral history in 1972. Uh, you know, so only less than two years before he was forced out. But the difference then, I think, not only was, you know, Richard Nixon had voters that supported him and the Republicans were looking at that. I think the difference was that the idea was that you could finally move against Nixon in the name of the American system and you would not have this complete breakdown, this complete fracturing. And so it was best to go ahead and do this because if you left him in office, the system would erode. It's different now because – and you have heard this from Trump and his own supporters in the past week. And they said, if I am impeached, if well, I am impeached – the people will rise The up. people will rise up. So I guess the question is then like, well, will they though? Because if he – if people – so long as people believe that and so long specifically as Republicans believe that their people will actually – really, really, really be outraged and go to the fences over it, then they're probably not going to do it. But I feel like we're closer to them stopping yep. believing that that's necessarily true than we've been. Yeah, but before we get to that, we are going to get to the point where this escalates in terms of rhetoric. And, and let me, because what they're saying is the people will rise up is, is they're saying, we will not let the system operate. We will bring the system down before you let you get our guy. And that ties into one of my f- statements that always sticks with me on Trump. Because it, it was not said as a joke, as a throwaway. The guy believes it. And that is, I could shoot someone in the middle of Fifth Avenue in New York City, and people would still vote for me. And so the idea is, you can close on me with every evidence you've got, but people will still back me. And if you come at them, when they say people will rise up, let's be very clear, Adam, they're talking about violence. 
Mm-hmm. They're not just talking about people saying this is a very, very bad thing. They're talking about violence. And that is where we are now, that if you are, that type of intimidation backs off this investigation, if Mueller is fired, this is a greater threat to the American system than it has faced in mm-hmm. peacetime at any point. Yeah. So, I mean, I have, I have, in an ideal world, Republican elected officials would have such a sense of moral responsibility to maintain American civic peace and American institutions that they would immediately slap down that kind of threat and they would, uh, if anything, be more enthusiastic about forcing this president to face the consequences of his actions to prove a point about how no one is above the law. I have zero confidence that Republican legislators actually have that level of moral and civic responsibility. What I do have confidence in is that they have a an acute set of antenna when it comes to exactly where the political margin calls lie uh, and what direction the political wind is blowing. And I get the feeling that we might be at the cusp of Donald Trump, I think, has been executing a high wire bluff for a long time to the effect that he knows and can control the Republican Party's base better than any of the elected officials who are also dependent upon it can do. And I think as the evidence stacks up that not only is he um, in enormous legal jeopardy, but also he is really not that, that, that much of an electoral asset, that that bluff is going to get called. And maybe he will turn out to be right and he will unleash a new civil war upon America, or maybe it will turn out that he is the latest in a long line of populist demagogues who um, weren't quite as capable of raining hell upon their enemies when when, when things really came to it as they thought they were. But um, I think we might be in the zone, in in the the pre-bluffs called zone within intra-Republican party politics, because after those midterms, it looks awful clear to me that uh, if Donald Trump continues on his present trajectory, he is leading the Republican Party into a bad electoral place. And the one thing I have absolute confidence in the Republicans to care about is their own electoral fate. Yeah, but let me add this then as a teaser, because I think part of that logic you've laid out is exactly why the resignation scenario, not impeachment scenario, but why the resignation scenario comes up to it. But there, there's something that still strikes me maybe a bit different in this case. And that is Donald Trump is not of the Republican Party. And a lot of Donald Trump's people are not of the Republican Party. They are beyond it. And I think part of the reason for this Republican willingness to shield him and being communist, they fear that if Trump goes down, the Republican Party implodes. And it implodes because all those people who have backed Trump, Trump first rather than Republican first, they lose those folks, right? So they've lost those folks. Meanwhile, they've been eroded with their own voters because they've shilly-shallied around and protected the guy. Where do they go next? There is a logic which says they go next by putting Mike Pence, who, of course, is a former legislator, former governor, very much, although an arch-conservative, a man of the Republican Party. They put him into office, and you rebuild or at least repair everything, as they tried to do after Nixon fell. But I'm not sure they convinced that can happen, which means they almost double down and say, we can't get to the point of Trump going, and they count on 2020. They count on playing this thing, this string out to 2020. Paradoxically, you wonder, hoping that Trump might lose the presidential election in 2020, but at least they haven't faced this grasp the nettle of pushing him out in some other way. At which point he can, of course, claim the election was rigged and uh, start his 
putative civil war that way. Anyway, that's that's a conversation for another day. Let's uh, let's draw a line under things there. I think we've set the world the world to rights, <laughs> or at least uh, laid an awful lot of the uh, intractable uh, problems that the world faces. Well, let me put a marker on down. The table. Let me put a marker down with you, Adam. That is, I missed June two thousand eighteen as the prediction. Oh, we're gonna we're gonna let's reconvene in June two thousand nineteen. You're gonna become like one of those um, apocalyptic cult leaders who says that the world's gonna end on some day, and then when it doesn't, they like go back into their hut and redo the numbers, and then come back and say, because, "Oh, it's actually gonna because be you're never June you're, the next year. You're, ne- you're never wrong if you can continue to say, "Well, we've reevaluated, and now it will happen." Mm-hmm. But Let's come back in June 2019 because I do think that it will be by that point that we will at least have the presentation of the case against Donald Trump, even if he is still retaining office then. Okie doke. I will diplomatically withhold myself from, from any such predictions. I think we set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow Political Worldview Podcast on Twitter at Poll Worldview, and please do. Uh, please also subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes. Uh, leave us a rating or a comment there, which helps others discover the pod. Uh, you can also come and like our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Poll Worldview for links to the show, etc. Recommend us, share us, tell people about us. We, we would appreciate it enormously if you could tell people to listen to us. Our participant today, other than myself, has been Scott Lucas. Where can people find you, Scott? Well, I'm at Political Worldview's partner, which is the uh, news and analysis website EA Worldview, eaworldview.com, where we're covering not only the United States on a day-to-day basis, including Trump Watch, we're also covering other areas such as the Middle East and such as this interesting country called Brexit Britain. Mm-hmm. You can also find me on Twitter at Scott Lucas underscore EA to hold me to account if my next prediction doesn't quite bear up. I'm Adam Quinn, still just about holding on to my voice long enough to close this podcast down. Uh, you can find me on Facebook. I'm Adam Quinn 161. I'm the guy in the sunglasses in front of the U.S. Capitol building. Uh, I am also on Twitter, although I'm much less active there, at Adam James Quinn. Our producer is Connor McKenna, and you've been listening to us from the Pulses Department at the University of Birmingham in England. Thanks to the Pulses Good Ideas Fund for their support, as always, which we very much appreciate. We will be back on the other side of Christmas. Christmas. We very much hope you will be too. Season's greetings to you and yours. We'll speak to you again then. Bye. Be good to each other.